Ephesians 5. Go to the last bit of Ephesians 5. I don't know where I'm going to put this. I'm going to hide this back here. No one look. Whoa. Ephesians chapter 5, the last bit of Ephesians 5. So I've been going through, whenever Matt's away, um, I get up here every once in a while, I've been going through Ephesians. It feels like I've been going through Ephesians for like two years because I get up here every once in a while and we, Ephesians, I do like half a chapter every time, but we're slowly getting through it. So let's go to the book of Ephesians, the last bit of chapter 5. And as we turn there, uh, I'm going to pray. Just to start us off, Lord, thank you for just your word, Lord. Uh, We just want to obey you, Lord. We want to be obedient to your word. We want to learn what it's like to to really live, Lord, not live as the culture tells us to, but how you tell us to, Lord. So just uh, bless this time today. Uh, Bless the kids downstairs as they're learning about your word too, Lord. And uh, we just thank you. We just thank you for who you are. Amen. Amen. So Ephesians, the last bit of chapter 5. And so as we've been going through Ephesians, as you guys probably remember, uh, as you probably don't remember, I'll jog your memory a bit, just on what we've learned up to this point, Ephesians chapter 5. So the first bit of Ephesians, kind of the first half of Ephesians, Paul told us that by grace you have been saved that you were once dead in your trespasses, but now you are alive because of Jesus. You used to walk in your flesh, but now you've taken off that old self and you're now walking in the Holy Spirit. You used to live in your desires of man. You used to live in the desires of your flesh in wrath. You used to be children of wrath. But by the grace of God, who's rich in mercy and in love, because he loves you more than you'll ever be able to comprehend God sent his own son, Jesus, to die for you and then was raised again so that your sins would be wiped clean. Jesus came and fulfilled that law. He fulfilled the law of the Old Testament, and now you are righteous in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of God. And you've actually been adopted into the family of God, what we learned in two Ephesians, by some weird mystery, some mystery that even the angels don't really fully understand, Jew and Gentile alike have been a Gentiles have been brought into the family. And then Jesus went up to heaven and he's up in heaven preparing a place at the right hand of God for you. But in the meantime, he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. And so we got to chapter four. That was basically the first three chapters summed up. Man, that would have been easy to do that in, I should have done that in one Sunday, shouldn't I have? So we get to chapter four and chapter four talks about kind of transitions to this new life we now live. Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to take off that old self that you used to once live in, to renew your mind in the Spirit and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So chapters 4, 5, and 6, kind of the second half of Ephesians, is more the practical stuff of what we just learned about the fact that you were adopted into the family of God. Because you are adopted into the family of God, because you are walking in the Holy Spirit, this is how you're now to act. And the last chapters, they kind of just give us a practical, kind of the stuff we love to learn about. Like, here's some practical stuff, how to live in the Spirit. You've taken off your old self. You're no longer in the flesh. You're now in the Spirit. Here's how you're supposed to act. And that right there, that 
reason I just said right there, I think, is one of the major reasons, actually, that people get get scared to turn to Christianity, right? They get scared to turn to Christ because, because when you surrender to Jesus, when you come to Jesus and you surrender to him, you have to change. Things change in your life. The blinds get ripped open and sun shines on those dark places that you don't want the, the sun to shine on and that doesn't feel so good, right? When you come to Christ, you have to change. And people often don't like change. You have to live differently and people, people don't like that. In the Bible, it says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? You see, obedience to God is important. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable. And today we're going to get into some of that stuff that might be uncomfortable for some of you. And it's a little bit uncomfortable for me, to be honest. At the beginning of the week, as I was prepping, I thought to myself, I thought, hmm, I wonder if maybe I should do a topical message this week or... I wonder if maybe I should call in sick like Saturday night and just they'll figure it out like someone else will figure it out. Right. I've had many a discussion on this topic that we're going to get into that for the most part, it remains civil over the topic of wives and husbands of children and parents and and servants and masters. And as I was nervously chewing my fingers at the beginning of this week, um, I just I just was not looking forward to preaching a message like this. Uh, the Lord kind of slapped me and he said, Blake, this is how I've designed the world. This is real living. There's nothing controversial about this. You want to live life to the fullest? Then live like this. And in our modern society of 2019, this can be uncomfortable for some people. Many would say that what I'm about to preach is wrong. But what Paul tells us here actually originated from the foundation of Adam and Eve. And for some of us, it makes us have to change. And that can be uncomfortable for people because people don't like to change. It it sheds some light on the darkness that we don't like to look at. So let's start with verse 21 of chapter 5. And this kind of sets us up for the whole rest of, of what we're talking about. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the rest of chapter 5 and and into the first part of chapter 6 deals with the idea of submission. And Paul talks about three different relationships that we're going to see here. The first is wives and husbands, as you'll probably see on the headings of your Bible. The second is children and parents. And the third is bondservants and masters. And so the important thing to remember here that I'm going to get out of the way is the word submit. Okay? People hear that word. And automatically in the context of, especially in the context of wives and husbands, the word submit comes into play and people take that word and they just switch it with the word inferior, right? But in no way, shape, or form, let's just be clear, in no way, shape, or form does the Bible say that women are inferior to men, okay? Or children inferior to parents or bond servants inferior to masters, I just want to get this clear because as we start reading this, I know some of you are going to tune me out and go, that male chauvinist pig, Blake, he's disgusts me. I'm not listening to anything you say, but let's, I just want to be clear. This is not about which gender is inferior to the other. We're talking about God-given roles in relationships. We're talking about order, and our God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. God took something that was formless and gave order to it. Can you imagine if we had a church full of senior pastors here? 
It'd be a nightmare. We'd be moving the chairs a sixteenth of an inch, like every. No one could stop moving the chairs to get them just perfect. If you've never seen Matt move these chairs, man, you got to come here early someday and see the just the precision, laser precision of how these chairs are set up. There's an order set in place. Even in our church, there's an order set in place with our senior pastor, with our elders. So we're not talking about who's better or worse in the order. We're talking about what relationships look like when people are living a spirit-filled life. So let's read. Let's read what Paul says to the wives, verse 22 to 24. And as, as we read this and I start to explain a bit and we get partway through and you women are starting to get annoyed at me, just wait. We'll get to the men in a second, the husbands soon. So let's read 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. So wives, submit to your husbands. It doesn't say submit to every man you meet. It says submit to your husbands. And Paul knows that right off the bat, this is going to be controversial. So he gives us three reasons why wives should submit to husbands. The first, at the end of verse 22, it says, as to the Lord. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. And this can be confusing at first because as women, you might think, well, I got to submit to my husband like I submit to the Lord. But let's get a couple of things clear here. This doesn't mean that you treat your husband the same way you treat God. Like, let's be clear. You don't treat your husband as if he's God. But it also doesn't mean that you only submit to your husband if he's acting in the will of God. If you decide he's acting in the will of God, then you submit. This isn't the extent of submission. This isn't how far you submit. And it's not how little you submit. It's actually the motivation for submission. When you submit to your husband, you're being obedient to the Lord. When you submit to your husband, you honor the Lord. You, when you submit to your husband, you're expressing your love for the Lord. You're expressing your submission to the Lord. The Lord exhorts you to submit to your husband. And that for me, should be enough. If that's what the Lord says, then that's what we do. But Paul gives us two more reasons for submission to the husband. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife. So the idea of the husband being the head takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And what is God's ideal? And this is something, um, as you read your Bible, you can actually, as you read your Bible, all the way from page about two or three, chapter one and chapter two and three of your Bible, all the way to the end, you can almost relate everything in that Bible back to the Garden of Eden. Because that is God's ideal. That is how God created it. He created the world. And as you read in, in Genesis chapter one and two, specifically with wives and husbands, we see that God created the world. He set man in charge over everything over in charge of naming the animals, in charge of, of taking care of the garden in the east. And eventually God realized there wasn't a helper fit for man. So out of the side of Adam came Eve. And that's the ideal that God created. You see, what we live in now is, is always looking back to that ideal of the Garden of Eden. And so does that mean that, well, man's better than woman then, there you have it. No, not at all. It just means in the order of creation and the ideal, 
the perfect world that we were living in at the time, the husband was in authority. So let's read verse 23 again to the end of 24 as we get to the third reason, the third reason that Paul gives to wives regarding submission. 23 to 24 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we see the wife's submission to the husband is a just beautiful metaphor of the church's submission to Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, and we submit to him fully. Let me ask you a question. Do things go bad for us as the bride of Christ when we submit to Jesus? Check, check. No? Yes? No? No. It doesn't, it doesn't go bad for the bride of Christ when they submit to Christ. And the end of verse 24 says, Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So does this mean that, well, everything the husband says, he, she should su- submit to? Not at all. If her loyalty to the Lord is compromised, then don't submit. I heard a story while I was prepping for this of, of Chuck Smith, kind of the, the founder of Calvary Chapels a long time ago. And, and back during the hippie era, when drugs were rampant, a little more rampant, well, I don't know. Go talk to Andrew. He'll tell you how rampant they are. When drugs were more rampant, more in the open than, than, they, than they are now, maybe, um, he was preaching to a, to a he was preaching at church, and a young lady came up to him after, and she said, you know, Pastor, you, you preach this message that I have to submit to my husband. So the next day, uh, my husband basically prostituted me out so that he could get money for drugs. So obviously, the point of that story, there's limits to submission, right? I'm not standing up here saying, women, you have to, wives, you have to submit to everything. You have to, no matter what, there's limits. And so listen, as we've gotten through the wives' side, the tough part's over. This isn't, I just want to be clear. This is, I get the irony of the situation here. A young, unmarried, white male up here standing Telling wives what to do. I get it. Listen, I get it. <laughs> right? I get it. It it doesn't, it's very ironic when you look at who's preaching and you go, this guy, this guy. Like, right? Like, you can't, you know, I get it. I don't even know what else to say. It's just, it is ironic that I would be preaching this. I think the Lord did that for a reason. And that's often the cause of strife that I get when I get in conversation of this. Of It, it usually ends up with, with, with people saying, well, you just don't get it. Like, you don't understand. You're not a woman. You don't understand. You're not a wife. You, how can you understand what is going on? And my response to that is usually, I get, I, yeah, you're right. I don't get it. I'm not a married woman. I don't get it. In my, in my human flesh, I totally agree. I don't get it what it's like to be a wife. But friends, I just end it with this basically saying, the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. Not because you're inferior, not at all. Let's make that clear. But because the Lord exhorts you to. Because in God's original ideal, the husband was the head of the household. And so that makes it all the more important. This is really the big point. For you single ladies, if you're single out there, 
Man, it is important to pick the right man. Amen? It's okay to be choosy. When you're getting married, because the Bible says you're called to submit to them. You're called to submit to your husband. Your husband is the leader of the house. So you need to make your choice count. I just want to make that clear. When you're, if you're single, make who you're getting married to count because you're called to submit to him. Pick a man that you can trust. Pick a man that you can respect. Pick a God-fearing man. Make this choice. Don't just, I get it, what it's like to be single and you want to get, you want to find a guy, but please don't be desperate. This is who you're going to be married to for the rest of your life. This is who you're going to be with. This is who you need to submit to. Make this choice count. And to those of you married ladies out there, you know, maybe your husband's none of these things I just said. Maybe they're not God-fearing. Maybe they're kind of a loser. You're like, what are you? You're a doofus, right? You just can't fathom submitting to him. You're like, you want me to submit to my husband? The next time he makes a decision, you maybe you stand up and you look at him dead eye and you... You say it in your head or you can say it out loud. I encourage you to say it out loud and you just say, I submit as to the Lord. And then you submit because that's what you're called to do. And so guys, now it's your turn. Husbands, husbands specifically, actually. I want to get away from saying guys because this is only wives and husbands. Husbands, you're probably feeling pretty good, right? It's okay. You couldn't admit it. You think you're going to get off scot-free. Well, let's go. It's time to pull back the blinds, let some light shine on that darkness. So now Paul talks, about, talks, talks to husbands. Let's read, uh, let's read all the husbands here, verse, starting in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, and husbands are called to love their wives. And this isn't any kind of love, though. This isn't, um, you know, just your general love. The word love here is, is the Greek word agape. And in Greek, they have four different words for love. They, starting with kind of your family, friendship love, your brotherly love, and it works its way up to agape love. And agape love isn't the, the sensual type of love. It isn't the love that you have for Big Macs. It isn't the emotion that you feel when you're in love with someone. But agape love is the self-denying expression of love that shows itself in how you act. You see, Jesus showed his agape love for humanity by caring for the poor, by coming as a servant, by washing the feet of others, by feeding the hungry, by looking out for his neighbor. And ultimately, he showed his agape love for you and for me by willingly giving himself up on the cross for you, even when you didn't deserve it. And this is the type of love that husbands are called to have for their wives to follow the action of Jesus, and to show your wife your love in the same way. Jesus laid down his life for the church, for his bride. Show that same agape love to your wife. And that's a big calling, right? That's a big calling that isn't for the faint of heart. 
I heard a funny story. I, I don't think it's real. I mean, actually, it could be real. I don't know. But it goes something like this. A, a husband came to his pastor, and the husband said, Pastor, you need to talk to my wife. She's not respecting me. She's not submitting to me. You need to go talk to her. And the pastor responds, well, let me ask you a question first. When was the last time you told her that you love her? And the guy responds, he says, well, pastor, I told her I love her on my wedding day. And I said, if anything changes, then I'll let you know. (laughs) You see, often in relationships, not even necessarily marriage relationships, a sort of unspoken cold war can kind of help, right? One side says, well, I'm not going to agape love her until she submits to me. And then the other side says, well, I'm not submitting to him until he shows his love for me like Christ loves the church. And this happens, right? Like, let's be honest, this happens in relationships, just all relationships. You, this kind of cold war starts and you're like, I'm not doing it till that guy does, does it back to me. And this is where I look to the husbands and I say, husbands, you're the head of the household. It's time to step up and treat your bride the same way Jesus treats his bride. Do you think Jesus, when you don't follow Jesus as a church, he says, well, I'm not, I'm not looking at you then. No, man, Jesus loves you always unconditionally. So husbands, treat your wives the same way. Tell her you love her. And I guarantee you, husbands, that your wife will so willingly want to submit to your leadership that it'll be unreal. It won't be a case of, well, you're better than me. It's like, no, no. You act like the Bible tells us to, and she'll want to submit to your leadership because you're showing your love the same way that Christ loves the church. And again, I get the irony. I'm a 28-year-old white unmarried male. I don't understand. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, you're like, Blake, you don't understand what it's like. You don't understand what it's like to be married for 40 years. It starts to get dull. You know. <laughs> well, luckily, Paul gives us another tip for, to help the husbands out. The husbands might be being like, you know, you don't understand, Blake, being with the same wife for 40 years. You just don't understand. Well, Paul gives us another tip to help the husbands out. Verse 28. Verse 28 says, of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. You know, sometimes I hear people say, and to be honest, man, to be honest, it's often women that say this, because women are hard workers, let's be honest. They say, oh, I I was working so hard today, I forgot to take lunch. And I always am aghast at that because for me, when I get to work at 8 a.m., my day revolves around when lunch is. (laughs) Where lunch is going to be, when lunch is going to be. I'm like checking my lunch box to see if I have enough food in there. Maybe I can have a little snack ahead of time. Because why is that? I don't forget to look out for number one, myself. I never forget about number one when it comes to lunch. I nourish number one. I cherish myself. I cherish it with cookies and muffins and sugary drinks and all the good things I love. Because it's easy to forget about other people. 
when you've been with them for 40 years, but you never forget about yourself, number one. And that's what Paul calls us to. He says, love your wife as if it was your own body. Nourish and cherish your wife. Follow the example of Christ and the church. And Paul takes us back again to the ideal garden, Garden of Eden. In verse 31, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When you get married, you leave your father and mother, and you become one flesh with your wife. So when you look out for number one, that's your wife too. Look out for her. Love your wife. Nourish your wife. Cherish your wife as your own body. When you're looking out for number one, you're looking out effectively looking out for your wife. Verse 32 says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so Paul steps it up another notch here, and he says, Listen, this mystery that we're talking about between wives and husbands is profound. Not because it's just wives and husbands, but when we, he's saying it refers to Christ and the church. It's not profound and, and confusing. It's profound because it's a mystery that when we see everything, when we think about everything I've just said about earthly marriage, and that applies to Christ and his love for his bride, the marriage between Christ and the church. When we've looked at, at, at marriage and we looked at it now, and basically Paul's saying everything you've just talked about, wives and husbands, everything I've just said, this actually applies to, to Christ and his church. And we realize that that's just profound, that Christ loves his, Christ deals with himself like his church. They're one. Christ and the church are, are one. He looks after the church just like he looks after himself. We see that Christ wants more than just an external surface relationship with us. We see that Christ showed his agape love for you by dying for you. And he continues to show his agape love for you. And he longs to show his agape love for you in the future. And it's, it's really a, I can't even, I was going to try and explain, but I can't even really explain it. It's just one of those profound, mysterious things that when you stop and think about it, you go, wow. Like the love of Christ that he has for the church, for you, the body, is just the implications of that, of understanding that the all-powerful Jesus Christ has this love for you, the implications of what, that comes with is insane that he sanctified you to righteousness and so what is our natural submission what's all that we can do i just gave it away because i spoke too soon submit that's all we can do is we submit to his authority so paul sums up everything he just said in one sentence verse 33 verse 33 says however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So husbands, love your wife as yourself without exception. Love your wife as being yourself and wives respect your husband. This is real living. This is what real living is. A study from 2001, I know it's a little bit old, but it's what I could find. It's a scientific study from the University of Denver. It said this, it said among couples that they studied, that regularly attend church together, they regularly read their Bible together, they regularly pray, 
together, they are 35% less likely to have a divorce compared to those with no religious affiliation. But this is what I find kind of interesting, actually. Those who have reported having some affiliation with the church, maybe one, you know, maybe the husband went, maybe just the wife went, maybe they go just periodically, they don't really read their Bible, just slight affiliation with the church. They were actually 20% higher chance of getting a divorce. And so what does that mean? I don't really know, but this is what I would say. When you live your relationships with Christ at the center, when you're obedient to Christ, when you regularly stay in fellowship with fellow believers, when you witness to others in your relationship, when you regularly read your Bible and spend time in prayer together in a marriage, man, your marriage will flourish. There's just one step. Love your spouse as you love the Lord. So that's the first relationship we've looked at, wives and husbands. Let's go to chapter 6, children and parents. And this is one side that I can a little bit more relate to. Let's read chapter 6 and look at the the children. Verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul shows us here the second example of what a spirit-filled relationship looks like. This time it's between a child and their parents. And the first thing that Paul does again, I don't know if you saw it there, the first thing he appeals to is your relationship with the Lord. This isn't just, as children, this isn't just a nice thing that you should do for your parents. Your obedience to your parents is a part of your obedience in your Christian life, for this is right. Then Paul solidifies the command even further by appealing to the Ten Commandments. Verse 2 says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. This is the only command in the Ten Commandments with an extra promise of success if you keep it. Deuteronomy 5.16 says, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You know, always remember, I've told you guys this story a few times, but I'll tell it again. Uh, when my dad first got sick with pancreatic cancer and I'd actually already signed up, I'd signed up for uh, to go down to Bible college in California. I paid my, I don't know, $3,000 in, in fees and I was about to go down there, and I was looking up flights, trying to figure out when I was going. Uh, and then about a month out uh, from when school was going to start, my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And um, and so the decision came, and it was like, well, you know, maybe I'll stick or maybe I'll maybe I'll still go for the semester. Maybe my sister will come down from Kelowna and just help look after things for a few months while I'm there. And as I was trying, because I'd already paid and you get suckered on the conversion rates and then they also hold some money back because well you've you know you can't just drop out and expect to get all your money back you know so i lost i was going to lose some money and i was like well i don't want to lose money <laughs> no one wants to lose money right but just what kept ringing over and over in my head was this commandment honor your father and mother and i ended up not going down to california and 
Man, let me tell you, am I ever glad that I listened to that commandment. Because it went well with me. I'm thankful to the Lord that I was around to help out. And so verse 4, Paul now looks at the fathers. And he says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, what does your relationship look like with your children as a spirit-filled man? Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke your children. Don't lead them down a path of anger, but discipline them. You know, I'm, I'm beyond thankful that some of you guys might have this, that my dad would give me a good kick under the table if I ever, you know, had my elbows on the table or he'd give me one of those, one of those looks that only dads can give. Or the classic, I don't remember this a lot ever happening at my house, but my sister, my sister has two young kids and being around her house with the young kids, uh, you guys probably know this one. This is a classic one that I'm sure I'll use someday. Well, no, I won't use it. I'll be the one getting used on. It, it comes across the house like this. It goes like this. The dad's at work and the kids are acting up. And what does the mom say? you guys better smarten up. Otherwise, when your dad gets home, you're done for. <laughs> and what's the response? Always. No, no, please. I'll behave. I'll behave. I've heard that one at my sister's house countless times. You know, fathers just have this ability to smarten up behavior quick. They have ability to administer discipline like no one else. I don't know what it is about fathers, but... But the important thing here for fathers is that you need to be spirit-filled to discern the difference between discipline and provoking your child to anger. You need to be disciplined yourself before you discipline your child. You need to discipline your child in love. You need to be fair and consistent in your discipline. You need to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. But more than that as fathers, what Paul says here is that you need to instruct your children. You need to bring your children up in the instruction of the Lord. You think, you think that child is yours? That child is not, well, it is your earthly child, not to cause any rumors. That's your child, but it is not your child. That is a child of God. The Lord has entrusted you to care for that child to raise them, to discipline them, to teach them the ways of the Lord. Like we're talking the saving of souls here. We're not talking just, oh yeah, raise your kid to be a good kid. Be filled with the Spirit so that you can teach your children in the ways of the Lord. And then finally, as we move on, we see the third example of a Spirit-filled relationship. It's between a bondservant and a master. Or as we like to think, an employee and employer to common modern times. And so Paul starts with the bondservant, verse 5 to 8. Let's read it. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. And so Paul, again, for the third time, you might have seen there, he appeals to your relationship with the Lord. 
He reminds you to, to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart in the same way you would to Christ. So when you're a spirit-filled employee, you remember that you're serving Christ. You obey your earthly master with fear and trembling. That's why I show up to work every morning shaking in my boots to see Darcy. I'm fearful and tremble at his presence. No, I'm just kidding. But you respect your employer, right? Respect. You submit to your employer with a sincere heart. And so what does that look like, you think? Well, what does respecting and, and, and obeying your, your employer with a sincere heart look, at, look like? Well, let's see. Paul tells us in verse 6, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man. Let me ask you a question. Do you only work as hard as you can when the boss is around? You can tell me. No one else is listening. It's just you and me here. It's okay. I won't tell anyone. Like it's human tendency, right? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. It's human tendency to maybe slack a little bit when the boss isn't around. I remember when I was in high school working at a locally, local grocery store. I won't tell you which one, but he hires every high school student around. When I got hired, when I first got hired, I think in grade 10, I had in my head, I thought, okay, this is my game plan. When I got, I got hired there, I only got hired because he knew my dad, let's be honest. That's how most things go. I got hired and I thought in my head, I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work really hard for the first six months. And I'm going to get the managers to like me. And they'll see I'm a hard worker. And then I'll be able to slack off for the rest of my grocery store high school career. Because they'll have a good view of me. And they won't be as so like on top of me like they are all the other high school kids. And it worked, <laughs> to be honest. But what a, what a dummy, eh? That's a terrible, terrible as a high school student. That's what you... And that's what Paul says here. Don't give eye service to your employers. You know why? Because your true employer is always watching you. Render your service in goodwill. Not only do you need to work hard, but you need to have a goodwill when doing it. I work as a plumber, and let me tell you, I show up to a lot of job sites, and when you show up to job sites with carpenters there that are just kind of like those angry, gruff old men that you're like, eh... There's just like a nasty shadow over the job, right? You're like, but when you show up to the job site with guys with goodwill and you're like, I actually enjoy doing this. Like, I enjoy, this is fun working here. And so finally, Paul gives some encouragement to the bond servants. And he says this in verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. You see, the Lord sees everything that you do. Not like Santa. Good or bad. The Lord sees it like the Lord sees everything you do. You're working for one ma you think you're working for your in the same way you think that's your child? You think that's your boss? No. Your boss is in heaven. And so our salvation isn't based on works. Our salvation is not based on works. But did you know that in Revelation it says that during the end of days, after Jesus has come, he'll hand out rewards based on what his people have done for him, for his name. When you bring glory to the Lord in your work, you'll be rewarded at the end of days. And so now Paul addresses the masters now. In verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, 
and that there is no partiality with them. Understand that you are in authority over your bondservant. In the order, you are in authority over your employee. But don't you dare forget who's in authority over both of you. To God, there's no partiality amongst slave or master. So stop threatening your slaves. You're to be guided by the same principles the servant should. You're supposed to be kind. You're supposed to be fair. You're supposed to be honest. It's very easy as someone in power to flex your authority on people, right? That's something I had to learn as a young guy, actually. When I had, when I moved up in the ranks and I had apprentices working for me, you're kind of like, oh, I got a lot of power now. I can tell this kid to go do 10 jumping jacks and he has to do it. But as a spirit-filled follower of Christ, you need to understand that someday both the master and the servant are going to stand before God and give an account for what they've done. It doesn't matter if you had more money than the other guy. It doesn't matter if you had more power than the other guy. 